When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start the show, how does he offer a free beer sound to you? The kind people at Beer52 are offering a free case of eight craft beers, sourced and curated from the best breweries on the planet. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £5.95 postage fee. Each case is delivered directly to your doorstep, so there's no need to leave the house. Head to beer52.com forward slash wisdom for that deal. Anyway, on with the show. England beat Australia 2-1 in a really high-quality T20i series between the two sides. Darren Milan climbed to the top of the T20i batting rankings and the group stages of the Willis came to a close. I'm Yaz Rana and to talk through all that and more with me today is the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, features editor of Wisdom.com, Tar Hashim, and Wisdom Cricket Monthly staff writer, Jim Wallace. Before we talk about all the things I mentioned in the intro, we've got to talk about Ian Bell. Um, the five-time Ashes winner announced that he will be retiring from the professional game at the end of the season and he has since played his final first class match scoring 50 and heartbreakingly out for 90 in his final innings against Glamorgan um, only eight Englishmen have scored more test runs than Bell only Cook and Peterson have more test hundreds for England than Bell and only Morgan and Root have more ODI runs for England than Bell Joe he's a five-time Ashes winner England haven't won the Ashes without Ian Bell since 1986 how do you think Bell's playing career should be remembered? Uh, in my mind he's an England great Hands down, no question about it. Um, if you look at his record over the period of time, I mean, the problem with Bell, he had such high expectations from everyone around him that he was almost on a hiding to nothing, really. Um, but certainly the 2013, certainly the 2013 Ashes, uh, for me, dispelled any idea that he was underachieving or, or, or didn't do what he could have done for England. Those were gutsy match-winning knocks in the biggest series. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I interviewed him a few months ago. I was a little bit surprised he retired, actually. I know he's 38, so it's, it's not like he's young or anything, but uh, I thought he might just do a Jaskothic and just bat and bat and bat. But he, also, he set really high standards for himself and um, obviously wasn't reaching those and felt it was time to go. But yeah, a few months ago, I spoke to him and, and he, he talked about the fact that he, he recognised a lot of people thought he'd underachieved. Uh, and I thought that was a really, really sad for him to say that. And he said, look, I tried as hard as I possibly could, did my best every day. I did as well as I could. And I felt like he shouldn't, I, he shouldn't have to defend himself on, on that front because he was an undoubtedly brilliant batsman 
Um, I guess the thing with Bell, it, it looks so easy, a bit of the kind of the gowish, it looks so easy. So that when it didn't come off, people thought, oh, he's just not taking it seriously enough. Uh, but that's nonsense. Jim, do you think part of that underappreciation is because of how good his teammates were? So in that England team under Strauss, with everyone averaging 40 in the top seven, I guess you don't appreciate someone who averaged at the end of his career 43. But after 70 test matches, he averaged 48, 49, I think. So do you think that's part of it? And also in the, the biggest series of them all, 2005 Ashes, he was just finding his way in test cricket. Yeah, I think there's a degree of that. And also the thing with Bell is that he's, you know, he's diminutive in stature and he's also so such an unassuming bloke that he's always going to be sort of overshadowed by the bigger bigger characters like your Petersons and and uh, the, the members of that side. The, the series of 2013, I was looking at some stats earlier, he got 562 runs at an average of 62.4. The next best was Shane Watson with 418. So he scored about 140 runs more than the next best person. He never got man of the match in that series. Did so that not? shows you that he's sort of under... So even though you say they were match winning, and often they were... Often there was someone like Jimmy Anderson or Graham Swan or someone who came up with a moment that overshadowed Bell. So he never got man of the match in that series. And in, I was thinking this in the shower, weirdly, this morning. Like, <laughs> it would have been known as Bell's Ashes because we won 3-0, nearly 4-0. Well, it, it, it should be, be known Bell's as Bell's Ashes, just like Stokes's Ashes or even you know Botham's Ashes or whatever because he was so clearly in front of everyone else. But it's just known as the 2013 Ashes when we sort of won 3-0 and no one really remembers it that well. Also, when you say 2013 Ashes, that is not the Ashes I think of. Yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's another another thing that you didn't yeah. really have much breathing space after the yeah. Ashes for the achievements to sink in. It was just then Mitchell Johnson and then that happened and then you kind of just forgot about that in a way, I think. And that, that was a time when, as England fans, we were really spoiled as well. And I remember a lot of people at that point didn't, didn't really revel in that victory they just said how bad Australia were uh, and there was actually some criticism of England for for not playing positively enough at, at different <laughs> yeah. points in that series which when you look back on it now and when we know what happened a few months later is, <laughs> it was obviously absurd yeah I guess but that's part, part, part of it that he, in that series he masked some of the cracks that were already developing in that England team like Trot and Pryor didn't have great series and Bell kind of carried England away um, we're, I'm going to ask everyone for their favourite Ian Bell memory if there's any that stands out start with you Taha um, it's more it's more just one that really stands out and I think it's his 235 um, at the Oval um, and it's you know we talk about the 2013 Ashes like cementing Bell as, as, as a modern England great but in 2011 I looked at the stats he averaged 119 with the bat across eight tests um, the 235 was like the crowning glory basically um, that Sorry, took say that again? 119 across eight tests wow um, I think it's five centuries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just around the time when he always got accused of only getting centuries when someone else had got a century. No, I think this that is... Was this, earlier. That, that was earlier. That was a bit that earlier. Was earlier. Yeah. So this is past that. Um, and I guess I guess the the problem is that it's in the team of Strauss, Cook. Like, Cook is having an incredible time at this in this same period. Um, but, you know, Bell, Bell by then was already... He was already on the path. He was He was, he was there. Um, and so I think he's also I think he said this to you Joe that that was the best he'd batted for England mm. um, so that that that's the that's the innings that stands out for me Jim um, mine is nostalgia themed as always and it is 2005 uh, I went as a as a 16 17 year old to the Old Trafford test uh, to three of the four days and I watched both of his 50s um, I think he'd got a 70 before against Bangladesh, maybe the year before, or West Indies. Um, West Indies. And 
people forget that um, Kevin Peterson sort of bullied Thorpe out of that side, but also Bell was batting four, I think, in that series, and he wasn't really getting a lot of runs, and he hadn't got any, and obviously he'd been targeted by Shane Warne, the whole Shermanator thing. He looked really young and a bit out of his depth, and then I thought in that match, he uh, he batted really well with Vaughan, and, and again, in the second innings, I think he got a 60-odd, uh, and it just sort of cemented his place in the side, I think. And he was just, even then, he had that cover drive. <laughs> yeah, I think my favourite one was kind of similar situation, but 10 years later, it was in 2015 Ashes where it was like peak binary bell chat. He was getting out for Norton one quite a lot. Um, and Ga- Gary Gary Balance. I think I missed that. <laughs> yeah, no, I did, missed the binary bell chat. A lot of people thought that he should have dropped. I think I, think I probably did. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then so it was when Johnny Bairstow was scoring millions of runs for Yorkshire. So he kind of had to play. Um, and England had to drop one of Bell or Balance, and they ended up dropping Balance. Um, and at the Edge Baston game, when I think Jimmy took five or six on the very grey first morning, um, Ian Bell came in at number three, uh, and the, the ovation and welcome he got from the ed, like well lubricated Edge Baston crowd was amazing. And he came out and, and scored a run and ball fifty, was batting brilliantly. And just as it was getting really really dark, there was a bit of rain in the air. Play until the close, belly. Uh, he then comes down the wicket, gets caught mid off of Nathan Lyon, which was, I think, the, the last over of the day. He had in the a end. habit against the spinners of doing that, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah, but that, that day was that was that was amazing. Um, what, about, what about you, Joe? So mine kind of is sandwiched between Tars and Jim's. It's the kind of transition from one to the other, which was on the 2009-10 tour of South Africa. Brilliant series, finished two all. Um, but Bellard had a bit of a shocker in the lead-ups that had actually been dropped on the tour of the Caribbean earlier that year after England was skittled for 51 in Jamaica. Uh, but he'd got his place back, but not very kind of solidly. And he begun that tour in the first test of Centurion by getting five and two. I don't know if you remember the first innings, is when he left a completely straight delivery from Paul Harris, who has never spun the ball in his career. So I don't know what I was expecting to happen. So it was completely inexplicable. It was just, yeah, brain fart, basically. He just It was bizarre. Uh, then the next match, uh, he scores a brilliant century at Durban. Um, still doesn't break the duck that you mentioned, Jim, of scoring a century when no one else did because Cook scored a century earlier in that inning. So still at this point, he hasn't broken that duck. But it was it was basically a match-winning knock. He scored 140, I think it was. Uh, played really bravely, played his shots even when he was under pressure and got England to a big first innings total when they went on to, to win that match. And it's, I was just looking up the, um, the reports of that game earlier and it struck me the Telegraph described that Durban innings as a career-saving knock, uh, which is probably an exaggeration, but it's just strange to think that it could have been at that point before Durban had played 50 tests, averaged 39 Two Asher series wins, but not really done much in either of them. Uh, if that had been it, that would have been an average, unfulfilled career. And at, so at that point, you could say Bell was underperforming. But what happened in the years that followed Durban, and there were peaks and troughs, obviously, but there were proper match-winning knocks, which justified all the hype that had come through when he was 15, 16, 17. Mm. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed by looking at players' cum- cumulative averages at the moment, like what they average at various points of their career. I've seen that on your Wisdom Facebook yeah, page. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, but it's interesting hearing that. It's like that, that record is not actually that dissimilar to Josh Butler's after that that amount of time in the side. Um, and also, I just think that the, if there was someone now who averaged 48 after 70 test matches, like how crazy English fans would be for them. But like, I don't think, I don't really remember everyone ever thinking. Well, that's the thing because we were so spoiled because of the the Cooks, the Strausses, the Trots. Um, the Trots doesn't sound particularly <laughs> pleasant. Um, but uh, yeah, Bell just, he just, he only really in that 
second half of his career did he sort of come to the fore? Did people start to take notice? Otherwise, he just um, went under the radar a little bit. So just another series to mention, 10-11 Ashes. Bell batting at six, I think, is six because Collingwood's at five. Collingwood's at five, Bell's at six, Peterson at four, and then you've got your top three. Uh, And I'm pretty sure that's the case because Collingwood couldn't buy a run in the whole series. was the only batsman that couldn't buy a run. And Bell kept coming in at like 300 <laughs> for four and batting like an absolute god. But obviously wasn't getting any credit because Cook and Tr- or, or Strauss had, had already piled on all the runs. Yeah. So Bell, I think he finished that series with an average in the 50s. But you just don't think of it as Bell's I can't even ashes. remember an innings that he played in that series at all. Well, there you must have been quite a few occasions where he just didn't bat, right? Yeah, so he didn't bat all that many times. And it, yeah. I think he might have got a couple of not outs. But... Um, but Even yeah, Bell he was, was batting six. He was down. At yeah, six. And, there, and there was constantly there was talk throughout the series of Bell should move up to five, Collingwood drop to six. But I think they didn't want to do that to kind of demoralise Collingwood further. So Bell stayed at six, <laughs> and him and Pryor had a lot of uh, strong partnerships in that series where they basically just ground Australia down into the dust. Yeah. Mm. You checked, Yaz. You didn't believe me, did you? No, yeah, I, I, I done my checking. Uh, <laughs> he was looking at his cumulative <laughs> average at that time. Um, and then, and also, Ben's not here with us, but I, I know that if Ben's listening, he's probably screaming. But what, what about that hundred at Nagpur? Um, ben, Ben's probably screaming. <laughs> what uh, so screaming. in in the in England series win in India in 2012-13, uh, they they drew the last test. Joe Root made his debut, scored a very slow 73 in the first innings, but in the England second innings, Trot and Bell scored uh, 200, 100 each and very slowly. That was quite important to England securing that draw. Um, so, yeah, a, a wonderful England career. And interesting, Joe, that you mentioned the South Africa series in 20, uh, 2009, 2010, because another key figure from that series has also announced his retirement this week. Graham Onions also called it a day, citing medical advice on his ongoing back injury. Onions only won nine test caps for England, but he was a three-time county championship winner with Durham. He had a brilliant career, and if it were not for injuries, he could have had an even more fulfilled international career. Yeah, desperate and lucky not to play more. I mean, we shouldn't, when a brilliant finish career is finished like his, we shouldn't just focus on the fact he didn't play much test cricket because he did amazing things in county cricket. But it is natural to kind of lament that he didn't he didn't play more. Uh, and that South Africa tour is a really good little kind of microcosm of Onion's career, and he bowled brilliantly in that series without getting much luck. More famously, batted out for a draw at Centurion, and then even more impressively at Cape Town, which Bell had made an important 70 earlier in that innings. Uh, and then got dropped for the final test of the series, dropped for side bottom um, for the Wanderers. Uh, and side bottom didn't bowl particularly well. England lost, played poorly. Uh, and Onions really deserved that test, having done what he'd done earlier in the series. And it always felt a bit like that in his England career. He was kind of the next man in or the first man out or not quite fit enough. And obviously there was the famous occasion where he was in the England squad uh got told in the morning that he wasn't in the team, went to Trent Bridge, I think it was, when he was playing for Durham and, and takes nine wickets in the day, uh, ruining his chance of getting the 10th because he uh, affects the run out for the 10th wicket, which is a, just a brilliant story. And again, <laughs> kind of sums up Onions, that he, he just took it in his stride, kept going, even though England selectors overlooked him, probably when they shouldn't a lot of the time. Uh, and one of the most popular people on the circuit as well, always a genuine joy to interview, always has interesting things to say. Um, anyway, the, the T20Is. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, it was a really high quality T20I series between Australia and England. Um, you, you normally see the top all format players rested from bilateral T20 series, but the lack of cricket played recently and with two T20 World Cups around the corner, we had pretty much all the stars on show. Taha, Josh Butler and Darren Milan were the, were, were the real stars for England with the bat. 
how, how impressed have you been with Milan in particular, who's now the number one ranked batsman in T20i cricket? I mean, his, his numbers are phenomenal. And I think someone, a few people made this point uh, on, on Twitter that is, he's the number one T20 batsman in the world and he doesn't even have an England contract, which is just remarkable. Um, and now I think the average just, just dropped below 50, but it was, you know, it was like average of 50, strike rate of 150. Um, and I mean, the, the criticism at him is that he's like this slightly slow starter and that he'll be like 10 off 10. But the, the consistency which would, he gets past, you know, 30, he gets past 50 is just sort of remarkable. And now I think, okay, so you've got Butler at the top of the order. That kind of seems like it's nailed on. Like his, the argument is just, I mean, the case is just almost too strong now at this point where he's just like, he said that it's his favourite place to bat um, in the format. So you've got him, you've got Milan, like, you know, at three, and then you've got Bairstow and Roy. And it's like, how do you fit these guys in? Um, Morgan said before the series that, you know, our three three great wide ball players for England are Roy, Bairstow and Butler. You, you drop Milan, the number one T20 batsman in the world. Like what, how, how does he do it? I, it's just, yeah. As you can tell by me trying to explain it right there. Do you think that the <laughs> slow start criticism is slightly unfair? I, I thought that, I know it's almost become a bit of a meme that he's, he's always going to be 10 off 10, but actually a lot of people start quite slowly in T20i cricket. And in the first game of that series, he accelerated and he ended up with a better strike rate than Butler in that game. Uh, and in the last T20i, uh, Bairstow started much slower than him, but you never really hear people talk about other people's slow starts and the way that people seem to focus on Milan's. Yeah, I think with Milan, there's an assumption, and I think we've been guilty of this on, on this show as well, that he's overperforming. And therefore, everyone's looking for frailties in his game to explain why he's not quite as good as, as his stats suggest. Um, but give him credit. I mean, he just keeps going. I think the question is whether he can maintain it long enough up to a World Cup or whether he's peaked too early because he is definitely, even with this form, he's the first player out should they want to bring someone in. Um, and I guess a lot of it comes down to how many games they'll play because there's not really games scheduled, is there, at the moment. To, um, but at the moment, I've every T20 side I've picked when we've been asked to do this, I haven't had Milan in it, but I've kind of given in for the time being and said, all right, <laughs> he should play. Um, but then who does he play in place of? Well, I had Banton in my side, okay. so... I think at the moment it is it would be tough to pick Banton over Milan. You'd be really going on promise rather than actually what you're seeing at the moment. Um, but I still think by the time he gets to the World Cup, Banton might have uh, leapfrogged him. Sorry, on Milan also, I think also I think people have said stuff about his sample size not being big enough. But I mean, 16 T20 hours, that's, that's quite a bit in my opinion. And also the fact that he made his debut in 2017 and got 50 there and like has spent quite a long time out of the side to then come back and then still be at that level is is really impressive. I don't think he's been given enough credit for that. Mm. Oh, de- definitely. And I think, um, so, I mean, for the for the next magazine that comes out next week, um, there's the, the review section where we talk about England's top seven. Uh, and in mine, I I uh, agree to this without really thinking about how difficult this actually <laughs> was. So, oh, that's only 200 words. That would take 10 minutes, but no. Uh, that was an evening. Three spent. days later, you're still <laughs> racking your brains. Um, but I, I actually had him. So this is under the assumption that like, if the, if you base it on current form and everyone was available, I I would have Milan right now over Roy. I think in the in in my England T20 team, I think Roy is a much better ODI batsman to T20. And for me, Roy 
So Butler at the top now is a non-negotiable for me. I mean, he's done so well. He wants to, as Ty, you said, he wants to bat there. That's kind of the end of it for me. Bairstow had such a good IPL in 2019. I don't think any England batsman uh, other than Butler has ever been that good at T20 cricket, basically. So he has to open, I think. And then maybe you could have Bairstow at three with Roy opening. But for me, uh, Roy has an obvious weakness against the balls spinning away from him. So I think top teams will target that. I can't see an obvious weakness in Milan's game yet that teams will target. Um, and then you've got Morgan, Moeen, Stokes, etc. And then about, I guess it's up for debate what you do with the finishing spot. Um, but for me, Milan is in England's first choice team. It's what you say about Roy is, is interesting and really relevant, particularly with the tournament happening in India. Those weaknesses might well be exposed. But his his overall record isn't brilliant in T20 cricket for England. But his recent record is actually very good, albeit some of those games aren't that recent. But his... Last few innings, I think 67, 69, 70, 47 are his last five knocks. So again, it'd be really harsh to to not pick him given how well he's done lately. I also think he's got so much credit in the bank from 50 over cricket, hmm. even if they're not necessarily quite as close as some people might compare them as, as formats now. Hmm. I think first game of World Cup, Jason Roy's fit, Owen Morgan has him in his team. Hmm. Could Milan, is he, would you think, do you think he's better off at staking a case for? being that finisher role that's there's obviously a gap there in that team and, and you know he can play shots all around the wicket he can obviously accelerate um did you see him saying that he'd asked Morgan that no I didn't so say yeah that. he said it I, again this was I wasn't sure if Milan should necessarily be telling the press this because it was <laughs> obviously a private conversation but he had said to Morgan what more can I do and Morgan mm. apparently said you're doing fine just keep doing what you're doing mm. and Milan had said what about if I kind of try and go for a finisher's role and Morgan mm. said basically just carry on doing just what you're doing on. well he yeah. said that the, the risk is that if you go back to county cricket struggle in the finishes role then you you might not be in the squad at all yeah and, Milan, yeah. and, and it was like milan said yeah fair enough yeah and he's doing so well also so, I, and I can't it. see yorkshire being all right yeah you can go in at number six and just face 15 <laughs> balls each time and... <laughs> um i mean i guess that there's still a question mark over that finishing role for england uh, i mean banton was batting four in this series and struggled there in an unfamiliar role um england have tried uh, Lewis Gregory they've tried Sam Billings who have struggled a little bit what about Joe Denley 29 not out of 19 balls in the final game Taha you were there I mean did you watch it I did yeah <laughs> yeah um, quite a few streaky edges oh, um, a couple of them were <laughs> genuine open the face down the third man I'm not sure they were um, I'm, I'm, definitely was. Um, I'm I can't say I'm convinced Yaz um, I was there let's let's um... yeah I mean Joe Denley's just been bit harsh done by i mean i think i saw a stat where he just barely ever bad at six before so like you're just you know it's not exactly fair to just throw him in in there and and he did pretty well to be fair and nearly got a wicket with his leg spin as well so not bad but uh, i i struggled to see where he actually really fits into this this england side joe denley is a very very good t20 batsman no but, he, uh, but he's not a mid-order batsman that's, that's... And, and this is the problem i mean i'm not saying he should be in the top order for england side because yeah. they've got so many good options but I do feel there's a lot of people saying he can't bat in T20 cricket. And I feel like that's because they've seen him in test cricket and not necessarily mm -hmm. seen much county cricket. And it's fair enough to say he's not suited to that position in England's T20 side. But to say he's not a good T20 batsman uh, is not accurate. Not that you were saying that. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's <laughs> just pent, pent up in me. <laughs> no, that's certainly Denly what I'm defensiveness. saying. Um, I was looking at some stats the other day and he's um, twice been the leading run scorer in the blast. Um, and that was like... There was quite a long gap between those two two mm. campaigns. 
So he's a fine T20 batsman. It just feels a bit unfair that he's being asked to do a role that he's never really done. Well, isn't that the um, problem that they can't find someone to fill that space and there's pretty much six or seven almost world-class batsmen that would bat one, two and three and then it's four, five, six and seven that they're more struggling with? I mean, who who do they try after Denley? If, if Denley's not the one, he they've tried Banton down there. Well, so my, my, my solution would be to actually not pick anyone. So, um, open. so basically, <laughs> pick, pick another bowling all-rounder. Um, so like, like they did in this series. Exactly. Yeah. So in this series, England had Curran bat- batting at seven. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are two pros to this. Uh, well, basically, your, finish, your finisher will just be the collective strength of basically having four number eights that England do. England have like four players who probably bat eight in most teams in the world. And also gives England an additional bowling option. So they could, in theory, pick someone like... Tom Curran is like a death specialist or David Willey is a new ball specialist. And you have seven bowling options when Stokes comes back in the side. I think England, they've got such a strong top order. If you're really looking for weaknesses, it's probably bowling in all conditions against all opposition. That mm. gives England more options. So I think I, I wouldn't mind them going down that route rather than putting in a specialist number seven. How often do number sevens actually win you games? With a bat in T20 cricket, I mean, yeah. not that often, I don't think. I think you look at England side they picked against Australia and you're like, oh, that is that's too long a tail. But that's because we, I think we're it's ingrained in us to think of it from fifty over point of view. Mm. And I think you're right; they won't face that many balls. And if they are facing that many balls, then the game is probably already lost. Mm. Um, what they really need, one of those Jordan or Tom Curran or maybe Sam Curran or Willie, we need to see a bit more from them as as batsmen. I think um, whether that's giving them more opportunities even putting them up the order in certain England games to, to give them more opportunities. Because at the moment, it does feel like they're coming in at number seven without much form or um, necessary experience in that role behind them. Tom, so, Moeen Ali became the first Muslim to captain England in T20I cricket. How big a moment do you think that was? Um, well, just in terms of the context of the last few weeks, I thought it was quite... Um, felt It just felt quite significant, um, obviously, with the whole Azim Rafiq story, um, which was something Moeen was, was asked about in the in the press conference afterwards. Um, but also, I just felt it was quite deserved. I mean, um, uh, he, he wouldn't have done it if, you know, Josh Butler was there, of course, if Owen Morgan was fit. Um, and, you know, he's done a really good job with Worcestershire over the last two seasons, been so influential there. Like, he 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 leads from the front, sort of bats in the top order, like, will take the new ball. And it's just quite, you can see it when you watch him, like, he's quite inspirational. Um, and it, it was just interesting seeing it as well because um, when we talked to him for Wisdom Cricket Monthly a few months ago, um, you know, he, I, I asked him about captaincy and he said he loved it Worcestershire, but he'd never, he didn't think he was seen as sort of an England captain in, in England circles. He said his, his, he said his attitude was slightly different. He was, you know, more jokey, more relaxed, and wasn't necessarily seen as as, as a captain. Um, so I imagine it might have been somewhat unexpected. Obviously, he was vice captain for the island stuff um, and led England for a bit in that when Morgan was off injured. Um, but yeah, it just felt quite significant and, and just deserving, even though he's obviously had a, a tough run of form um, with both bat and ball. Um, but he's someone who served England so well over the last few years and is um, just such a likable guy as well. Uh, you know, let's face it. And uh, a great role model. Yeah. I mean, I just imagine how many kids around the country, like, young British Asian kids seeing Moeen Ali captain England how big a moment that is for them I remember when I was younger a big part of me realising I'm probably English was actually having Nasser Hussain being the England captain yeah, exactly. I think it makes it's easy to underappreciate how big that is for 
quite a large community. I was, I was, I was really, really happy when yeah. I saw Moeen walk to the toss. And uh, watching Adder Rashid bowl like that yeah. might have inspired a few people as well. I mean, how, how good was that spell? It was brilliant, brilliant. He was uh, brilliant all series, brilliant all summer. He just looks like sort of every ball he bowled in those four overs. He was just, he was on the money. Um, the googly was, was was beautiful, really. Um, the one to Finch. Yeah, the one yeah. to Finch. Um, and then he, and then he got Steve Smith caught and bowled as well. Yeah. I mean, it was just caught in, in, it was in those four overs that, that England could have somehow won it. He was he was just unreal. Um, and now it's kind of just hard not to not not to think about him in bowling with the Red Bull. Um, I don't know if that will happen. Getting Steve but... Smith out with the Red Bull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jim, um, do you think that's something that England should consider doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that they should try and make uh, whatever needs to happen for that to happen, happen. Um, <laughs> because you can just see that his confidence is up again. Obviously, it, they're completely different formats, but the ball's coming out of his hand really nicely. He's He's absolutely ripping it. And he has that mystery quality that gets out the best players in the world. So, you know, your Aaron Finches and your Steve Smiths, you sort of need that extra th- something in your armory to get rid of them. So for me, if he wants to do it, that and that's crucial. If he wants to, then yeah, get him in. Joe, what do you think? We, we kind of talk about this every couple of months, but he does really well. <laughs> well, I think I described it as a red herring uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it feels a bit less like that now because he's bowled so brilliantly since. And there is also more murmurings in the England camp that they are keen for him to play Red Bull cricket and suggestions that if they go on a kind of inter-squad tour of the UAE in the winter that he will potentially go as a Red Bull bowler. As Jim said, for me, it's just, does he want to do it? If he wants to do it, there's not really, I don't think there's really much question. If he's actually determined to do it and not just have a go at it, but really want to do it, then he's got to be in there. Mm. Um, it, was, it was a very good series generally for England's attack uh, Archer, Rashid, Wood, Curran, Jordan all, all doing pretty well um, Australia were obviously less match ready than England who came into the series straight off the back of the Pakistan series um, Joe what do you think that Australia have learnt from the series are they any closer to knowing what their best team is? No I don't think they don't seem to have a clue at all <laughs> um, Alex yeah, Carey's not going to bat three yeah. <laughs> The only thing that seemed settled was their opening batsman, and then they changed that for the, the third match as well. Um, yeah, they've got a lot of options. There's, a, there's definitely the makings of a, of a really good side. I know they're no, the number one in the world's side, but the rankings are a bit weird in T20 cricket because they play so, so few games. Um, but all the ingredients seem to be there, perhaps lacking a world-class spinner. I know I know Zampa bowled quite well in the third game, and he's up there in the rankings, but he's a long way short of... Adil Rashid or Rashid Khan, the, the, the very best T20 spinner. You see how much he doesn't turn it in comparison to Rashid and it's quite striking, really. He relies a lot on his flight and his and his sort of quicker balls and changes of pace, but yeah. for me, it just looks straight. It's quite one-dimensional, isn't it? And it looks like if a player gets after him, he hasn't really got anywhere to go, uh, whereas a lot of the T20 bowlers have so many different kind of weapons in their arsenal. But um, but there's loads of players that I'm not quite sure what they should say. So Stoinis hits a long ball uh, feels incredibly well, has a ridiculous arm, but I'm not really sure where he should he should bat in that. Similar side. problem to England though, mm-hmm. that he's brilliant in the big bash as a top order batsman. He's then uh, shoehorned in lower middle order, and like as you could tell in that first T20I, where we've not really talked about, it, but Australia completely bottled that chase. Mm. Uh, like ten wickets in hand, needing basically <laughs> run run a ball like hundred for none, pretty much, and not winning that game was was pretty extraordinary. Um, and Stoinis at the end didn't do 
awfully, but like looked quite one dimensional in his in his uh, stroke play. Like he was basically just trying to play the same shot every ball at the very end against against Tom. And Curry. Agar too. They had Agar was in with him. Agar right? at and, seven. Yeah, and they're trying to turn him into the sort of finishing role a little bit, aren't they? Like mm. a bowling finisher for Australia, and it just looked again. He looked a bit one dimensional. That he didn't quite have the confidence and the shots in his in his locker to to see them over the line and England would just put the squeeze on basically and, and they capitulated so. the, thing, the thing they seem to be lacking because Maxwell's obviously got that that X factor but that Australia side looks like it needs Maxwell to come off more regularly than he does in the way that Morgan can win a game with explosive shots but he actually does it quite regularly whereas Maxwell will do it in extraordinary fashion reasonably regularly but not regularly enough to be relied on they haven't got the players around him in the same way that, that England do but those that you look at next year's tournament, I mean, you could say probably four teams, five teams possibly have a really good chance of, of winning it. Um, and So what five? What five? Well, England, Australia, uh, India, West Indies, and then maybe Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I think on, on Maxwell, I think part of the uh, focus on the way he gets out is, is kind of because of how crucial he is to their team. So, for example, in the first T20 yeah, it wasn't a great shot, uh, chipping Rashid's last ball to cover. But it was it was kind of there to be hit. It wasn't executed that well. Like, there were worse shots in that Australia class. Warner's shot off Joffre Archer when they needed to run a ball was was extraordinary. Like, you'd never play that shot if you needed to run a ball with Norwich and handed an ODI. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of feel that Maxwell sometimes gets a little bit too much stick for. And also in T Twenty, isn't just any shot is fair, completely fair. Like you mentioned, Denley, and you know, he was hacking away, and and you know, it, and you've got a good chance it'll come off an edge or an under edge and go for four. I spoke to um, Liam Livingston last week for something, and he was saying about. I asked him about his get out of jail shot in in twenty twenty cricket. And he was, and he was quite upfront, and he just said it's an it's a horrible hack. So he just watches the ball, doesn't really pay any attention to his back lift, his grip, his foot movement. He just watches the ball intently and tries to hack it into the leg side. And that's something that he says he can do, and he can hit that for six. But you know, he would find it harder to do a paddle sweep or a cover drive or something. So I think I guess that's just twenty twenty, isn't it? That if it comes off, it looks great, no matter what shot it is. But then, if you try it and it looks a bit daft, then. Mm. But it's also about the scoreline. Um, yeah. And then, um, in that third T twenty, I I'm a big big um, Glenn Maxwell fan, but um, Australia needed sixty or fifty nine, and he goes for like a little reverse sweep of of Rashid, and uh, and he goes to slip, um, or yeah, some something like that. Um, and it was just 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 not the right shot for the situation. Um, Maybe he knows that he they're relying on him more, and it's sort of stifling him a bit. He knows that more is on his shoulders, and there's less to come behind him, and it makes him do stupid stuff. I'm interested when when you spoke to Livingston, did he talk at all about England T20I ambitions, etc., World Cup ambitions? Just because he he is somebody who's outside of the current England setup, who I think could actually be quite well placed to to be a finisher if if called yeah. upon. Yeah, I did ask him about that, and he said that. that he just wants to play, obviously, you know, he just wants to get in the team. But obviously, I think that is something that he's that he's looking at. Um, he was COVID cover, I think, for this series, wasn't he? But then he got released back to Lancashire. Um, and, he, and he also stressed his Red Bull, you know, he wants to... He, he, he had a place for Rajasthan, maybe, in the IPL this year. And he, and he turned it down because he wanted to play a lot of Red Bull cricket. But then, obviously, there wasn't a great deal of Red Bull cricket. So, um, but he was stating his intentions that... You know, he wants to play all formats of the game. Mm. I mean, it's only two, two, two and a bit years ago now that he was in an England Test squad for the uh, yeah, New, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he the kind of a lot of the criticism directed at Denley is from people who watch a lot of T20 cricket and cannot fathom how Denley is getting picked above Livingston for a role that Livingston seems much more suited to. I think he was the second highest six hitter in the Big Bash just gone or the winter, last winter, mm. uh, which in that role is what England need really. So it, it is strange that he hasn't been given more opportunities. I wonder if it is perhaps that lack of nuance in his play as he's basically completely said to you which which is uh, perhaps holding him back but you know as he said all bowlers know where I want to whack it but if I get hold of it even 70% is probably still going to go for six uh, I love that <laughs> he literally did say he said if I if I plink it at 65-70% it's still going to go for six and he also said he doesn't when he comes to the crease he doesn't look at the fielders he just looks into the stands which is again I mean maybe they all do that nowadays but just struck me as pretty remarkable. Just pick a seat and aim for it. Just, you can do that now as well. Yeah, they're all empty. <laughs> right, the Willis, what we're all here for. Um, so the group stages have come to an end with Yorkshire, Somerset and Essex winning their groups with 87, 97 and 90 points apiece. Meaning the final laws will be contested by Somerset and Essex, the top two in last year's county championship. ESPN Cookinfo reporting that the final will not be shown live on Sky Sports, citing scheduling clashes with both the IPL and England's Women's Series with West Indies, as well as construction work at the ground that will impact the level of coverage they'll be able to provide. That's obviously um, a big shame. But we did have a cracker of a final round. The big game was between Somerset and Worcestershire. Essentially, but not quite a winners-take-all semi-final. Somerset eventually won by 60 runs, defending 245 on the last day. 20-year-old former England under-19 opener Tom Lambie carried his bat for Somerset, with an unbeaten 100 in their second innings. Um, Somerset's bowlers, as we have talked about on this show, um, but but I really want to really want to go into it again, have had an amazing summer. So Scotland seamer Josh Davey has taken 24 wickets at 10. Craig Overton has taken 28 wickets at 10.71. Jamie Overton, prior to his move to Surrey, took 15 wickets at 12. Brooks took 13 wickets at 16. And Lewis Gregory finished bottom of the averages with 10 wickets at 19. <laughs> Uh, just so, two so, matches as well. That. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's 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 pretty handy. Uh, there was no room in the side for Yorkshire-bound England off-spinner Don Bess, who was left out of the Somerset eleven for Jack Leach, who only bowled eight overs in that game himself. Essex beat Middlesex to 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 also get into the final. They beat them by nine wickets. Sam Cook taking seven fifty-five across the game there. Elsewhere, Ben Coe took eight for forty-one for Yorkshire in their win over Leicestershire. Joe Clark and Ben Duckett both scored hundreds for knots in a drawn game against Durham. Um, that's Clark's 17th first class 100 at the age of 24 and Duckett's 18th at the age of 25. Lancashire beat Derbyshire to end their hopes of qualifying for the final. Kent beat Hampshire by seven wickets. Darren Stevens with another Pfeiffer. I've got a list of players who Darren Stevens is older than and this is going to terrify you. <laughs> Darren Stevens is older than Andrew Strauss, Matthew Hoggard, Andrew Flintoff, Steve Harmison, Simon Jones, Geraint Jones, Graham Smith, Paul Collingwood, Makaya Antini, Kumar Sangakara, Mahela Jai Warner, Brett Lee, Daniel Vittori, Verenda Sewag, Zaya Khan, Ramnes Sarwan. That is um that 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 that's quite extraordinary. Um anyway, elsewhere in that game, Zach Crawley scored a runnable hundred in the run chase in a low scoring game there. Surrey got their first first class win of the season, beating Sussex at home. There's a ton for Rory Burns, but perhaps the most notable part of the game was the debut of young James Coles at sixteen years and 157 days, who became Sussex's youngest ever player. An all rounder who bats six 
Coles took three wickets with the left arm spin, including those of Ben Folks and Rory Burns. The one of Folks is a really lovely delivery, and he bowls a lot like Ravi Jadeja. He got his action and running up everything. Uh, n- no pressure there. Um, and finally, the match between Northants and Gloucestershire was abandoned after the first session on day one. After Northants player who wasn't in the playing eleven tested positive for COVID nineteen, neither team was in contention for the Willis, so it didn't affect that competition. And their game against each other in the Blast this week will go ahead as initially scheduled. So how, how how do we think the first and perhaps only season of the Willis has gone, Joe? It's been great, hasn't it? I've loved it. I've enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, I'm really pleased that it's an Essex-Somerset final. I know last year's sort of finale with the two playing each other um, to decide the county championship winner ended up being quite an exciting match, but it was a bit of a damp squib through most of it. Well, it was literally raining for most yeah, of it. Yeah, <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't really get the final we wanted. So hopefully get good weather... Um, for this final it's a real shame it's not on TV I understand the reasons behind it but that is that is a real shame but overall it's it's been a really great competition and, and something we obviously didn't really think we would get at one stage in the summer um, it's been a real nice mix of some of the old stages you look at the the wicket takers and Stevens, Murta Hannan Dalby are up there they kind of the, the names you'd expect but actually the batsman is, is, is I think uh, Jake Libby Worcestershire opener is top Ben Slate is right up there. Some some names you wouldn't have necessarily expected. A few youngsters coming through, which I think we're going to pick out a few of them now. Uh, so it's bit. I think it's been a, a great tournament, and it's also created this kind of murmurings about whether we should look at the structure of the county championship, which we've discussed before, and whether these kind of three smaller groups is is the way to go. Mm, absolutely uh, worth saying, by the way, that the the final will be uh, broadcast on TMS. So. Well, it's not on TV, it will be on the radio. And, and they'll be and streamed. And streams, yeah. And streamed. That's right. The, that's been one of the highlights for me is all the streams around the around the um and seeing the different ground so I watched a bit of Derbyshire versus uh Lanks at Egberth in Liverpool, sort of a ground that you don't get to see very often. And some of these sort of uh outposts that haven't been um haven't had their sort of you know, their glorious past, shall we say, back in the day. But um I really enjoyed that and also um how how sort of quick and fast the games have come has been really good as well. I think as is it Ather's writing in the Times today has has been alluding to the fact that maybe it's something to look at in terms of future seasons, in terms of creating more of a buzz about county cricket and and streamlining it a little bit um, in terms of spaces between games and getting that more of a trophy. Um, I know it is the county championship trophy, but more of a sort of knockout round robin element to it. Everyone in the competition's got a chance to win it yeah. as well. Yeah. And also, I guess, um, kind of by accident, you ended up having all the games pretty much take place in the height of summer. So we talked about it way back after the first round, but spinners have done really well, which is which is great to see. They don't often get a bowl really in the county championship. Um and yeah, as Joe alluded to, one of the highlights has been seeing so many young players get an opportunity with loads of players in various England bubbles. Uh, and fewer overseas players. We've seen quite a few people make their make their debuts, etc. I think Lancashire gave handed out debuts to seven different players in the Bob Willis Trophy this year, which is brilliant. Um, so I've asked everyone to to come prepare today, a bit of homework, uh, with one breakout player. So not necessarily someone in their first season, but someone who's had a bit of a breakout season in the Bob Willis. Tar, we'll start with you. Who have you gone for? Um, I wouldn't say he had a breakout season. It was more a breakout knock. Uh, Jordan Cox is... Um, 238 not out um against Sussex uh, as last month he's not uh, <laughs> he's not got too many runs since um but uh, uh it was you know he was 19 um put on 400 and something with with Jack Leaning um monster partnership 
Um, and, um, you know, I got to, I spoke to him afterwards um, and he's probably the most confident cricketer I've ever spoken to. Um, really. Not even the most confident 19-year-old cricketer you've ever spoken to. No, just the most, just confident, the most cricketer. confident cricketer I've <laughs> spoken to. It was, a, it was a really great interview. He spoke really well. Um, but he was talking about how he... Um, and he first mentioned... And I first... Uh, saw mention of this uh, in a piece in the in the standard but when sam billings was talking about it um but he confirmed the story is uh, this is he finished um he came back to bat on the second day um on 167 not out and he and he goes to the rest of his established colleagues like sam billings uh daniel Beldrum and darren stevens that he's gonna go past their their first class bests um and he did it to be fair to him um uh, and uh, and then also said to me in the interview that he's, now he's looking at Zach Crawley's two six seven. Right. So he's, uh, God, he's got a lot to live up to. Yeah, def- definitely uh, slightly tongue in cheek, but I think he. I the think confidence he of youth, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, he's he's a he's a nice batsman to watch. Very still at the crease. Um, he's a keeper batsman. He he obviously doesn't keep for Kent right now in in red ball cricket. Ollie Robinson's doing that job, uh, but I think he's done a bit of it in the blast. Um, Opens as well, so opens yeah. as well, yeah. Um, and obviously played for England under 19 at the World Cup earlier this year. And he was telling me about like, obviously he came across very confident, but he said, you know, I've not always been this way. Um, last year he um, he was playing for Kent in the Blast, um, and England under 19s were playing the next day, and he called up John Lewis, England under 19s head coach, and said, "Is there any chance I can play?" Uh, got the got the go ahead, um, and then hit a hundred and twenty two the next day for England under nineteens against Bangladesh, who the best under nineteen team in the world as well. Yeah, and he uh, had a really horror tour of their f- with Ang- with England under nineteens a few months earlier. So he said that that was kind of like a turning point for him, where he kind of realised that he's, he's was he down to play or he was in, he was in the squad, but no, he wasn't down to play because he was playing for Kent in the Blast, I think. Um, um, and he just just called up John Lewis and said, "I'm in form. Get me in." <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe something like that. Yeah. Um, and this this the double century as well. He he said, you know, just getting to fifty because he'd played a few first class games and and not done much. He said getting to fifty in that game was was massive for him from there. And then he just kept on going from there. And obviously, yeah. So one one to keep an eye out on the future. Didn't have a massive season in the end, but definitely. If you hit 238 when you're 19, well, yeah. It's a good start. It's a good start. Uh, Jim, who's yours? Uh, mine, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I probably flunked my homework, but um, he it's Matt Critchley of Derbyshire. So I've gone for my home county just to, uh, I really thought that they were going to reach their first, um, well, win their first trophy since 1993. But they... Uh, I think they needed they need the batting point and they needed and 200 and then they had one wicket left and some uh, I've forgotten who it was but he'd hit a six to take them to 195 and then he tried to hit another six to get 201 for the batting point and he got um, he got this stump smashed everywhere he also so. needs to win that game though as well yes yeah. <laughs> and they didn't do that yeah. either but um, so I watched a few I watched uh, quite a few Derbyshire games on the, on the streams and stuff and I really was taken by Matt Critchley who isn't a breakout star um, he's still only 23 uh, and he's a leg spinner and they always say leg spinners sort of bloom a, a little, take a bit longer to bloom. He's he's been he's worked with Stuart McGill down under and Anil Cumbley. So he's six foot two, so he's quite tall for a spinner. And he he's mentioned that he's um, he took a lot from working with Anil, Anil Cumbley in India because he's obviously a tall spinner and gets lots of bounce and the things that he can offer on um, unresponsive pitches. Uh, and yeah, it's just been lovely to watch um, a leg spinner go about his work in the county championship. Uh, a lot of games back to back. Um, he bowls in his shades a bit uh, Giles-esque and uh, he can also bat 
He's the youngest centurion for the county. He's, he's a genuine all-rounder, really, isn't yeah. he? It's been, it's been bowling he came in as a batsman more, really, actually. Yeah. And then I think he was 18 and he scored, he scored a century in his second knock, maybe, for I mean, the county. He, his numbers are great. I mean, he... Uh, Derbyshire like their all-rounders. Louis, Louis Rees uh, opens the batting and the bowling. Um, <laughs> but Critchley averaged 39 with the bat and uh, 26 with the ball, 17 wickets at 26. So a really good series. And as you mentioned, Stuart McGill, Stuart McGill tipped Critchley to play for England earlier yeah. this year. So, yeah, yeah he's, he's really highly rated. He's at that exciting time where he's been around, I think, did he make his debut in 2015? So he's been around four or five years now. He's obviously still in his early 20s, but... He seems to know his game a bit more. The, again, the ball was coming out of his hand really nicely. He was picking... I don't know how many... I don't think his stats for the Bob Willis are amazing, but he did get quite a few... Um, he got quite a few Lancashire wickets. He's got a 10, 10 for one ten for one nine four, I think, last season. All 10, so... If he does go on to play for England and he stays at Derbyshire, yeah. he'll be the first Derbyshire England cricketer for a long, a old long, while, long right? time. Yeah. I'm trying to think who the last... Got to be Cork... Nick. Cork or Chris Adams or Devon Malcolm Cork probably it's around Cork. that time yeah. but I mean yeah. those are all <laughs> a long yeah, time yeah. over 20 years ago pretty much although Knott's will probably steal him before he plays for England well <laughs> um, I also spoke to Shield Berry this week and he was he uh, grew up in Sheffield and he had lots of childhood memories of going to, to Queen's Park in Chesterfield to watch um, uh, Derbyshire play there he tell, in one of his Telegraph co- columns he writes about have you, have you been to Chesterfield you know the Crooked Spire he tells a very sort of fruity anecdote about that in one of his Telegraph columns, which is very <laughs> funny. But um, he he mentions this, that Derbyshire seemed to have this, uh, they produce players and then he, he said, that, you know, it won't be long before Surrey or someone come some come poaching for Critchley. So hopefully he uh, he plays for England and he still plays for Derbyshire. That'd be lovely, but we'll mm. see. Nice. And Joe, who have you gone for? Um you mentioned him in your um, expertly delivered rap at the start of uh, Tom Lamonby, uh, Somerset, 20-year-old left-hander who made his first-class debut this summer, so he really is a, a breakout star like Jim's. Um, but he, uh, well, yeah, he, so he generally batted in the middle order uh, for the second eleven last year, bowling a bit of left-arm seam, um, but was asked to open the batting in the Bob Willis Trophy, which felt a bit kind of like a sacrificial lamb. There's not a huge amount of openness getting lots of runs between county cricket in general especially at Taunton as well especially at Taunton <laughs> and it's a position Somerset have really struggled to fill in recent seasons so it felt like the equivalent of asking the sort of young lad to go in at short leg really to go out and open the batting but he got 41 in his first knock then had a run of low scores but finished the group stage with two unbeaten hundreds and an unbeaten 43 in his last four knocks and as you've been describing the, the Somerset bowling figures they've been on some pretty spicy pitches as well so that, that it really is a, a pretty impressive effort Saw Somerset home with a century against Gloucestershire and then carried his bat for 107 out of 193 to set up that crucial win against Worcestershire. Youngest ever Somerset player to carry their bat. Uh, I've actually seen more of him in T20 cricket where he's absolute gun fielder uh, and a useful left arm seamer as well. So there's a lot to like about him. I think he's known more as a shot maker. So it's doubly impressive that he's managed to kind of grind these these runs out. Mm. So Somerset have found another one. There's there's plenty of talent around there, and they're brilliant at bringing it through. Yeah, I mean, they're, uh, I think Lambie played for England in the 2018 Under 19 World Cup, um, and just looking at the England England didn't do very well in the Under 19 World Cup this year, but quite a lot of the players who featured in that tournament have played. So just going through the squad list there: George Balderson, Langshire's played, Ben Charlesworth, Tom Clark, Jordan Cox, Blake Cullen at Middlesex, Scott Curry at Hampshire. Uh, Hamadilla Kadri, Jack Haynes at Worcester, George Hill at Yorkshire, Dan Mousley at Warwickshire. They all played 
uh, to varying, varying degrees of success this season. But it's great to see so many of those guys get an opportunity so early. Uh, my 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 pick is somebody uh, who made his first class debut this year. So um, Dan Moriarty at Surrey, left arm spinner. Uh, in two games, he took 17 wickets in the in the Bob Willis Trophy, including three five-wicket hauls. Um, and in the blast, he's got an economy rate of under six and over from his first five games. So a great start to his career. Um, and yeah, bowl, bowling in tandem with Amar Verdi, doing very well. So again, great to see more spinners uh, do well. Um, finally, predictions for the final. Um, Jim, would it be more Somerset for them to finish runners-up again or to win the first-class competition the one year it's not the county championship? <laughs> the latter, I think. <laughs> A bit like Liverpool winning the league this year, uh, the Premier, the Premier League. I think with, with that asterisk. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think Somerset are going to do it. Actually, um, I just think it will. That that will be with that with that pace attack. Uh, who knows what the wicket's going to be like? I can't. Well, as the Lord's wicket, is it been playing? It's not been that spot. It's not known for being particularly spicy, is it? Well, it's hard to tell. Middlesex never score any runs there. <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, I'd love to. I mean, how many mountains have, would have to be moved for it to be on the BBC? Or do you think that county final? M- many mountain ranges, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the campaign starts here. <laughs> but yeah, Somerset for me, I think. Just to annoy Phil anyway. <laughs> Tar, what do you reckon? Well, I was going to say, Phil's not here. So I'll say Essex on, on his behalf. Um, they are they're quite good at winning. Um, so I reckon, I reckon they're, uh, they'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that Somerset have actually... You've seen some Somerset batsmen bat well this summer. Tom Abel, as well as Lambeat and well, George Bartlett scored a really important 100 early in the season as well. But Essex's batting life is just is really good. You've still got Alistair Cook. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't think they've had a... I forgot about him. Cook's, Cook's their highest run scorer. Um, but they've, they, they, they've not got anyone else who's like in the you know um, highest run scorer list. Mm. It's, it's always down to, down to that bowling attack with, mm. uh, with Harmer at the front, who's just... Ridiculous, really. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's. Uh, I think. I think ESPN cricket info's Matt Roller described him as county cricket's cheat code. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite a, quite a good description. Eight innings, he took thirty four wickets at thirteen, economy rate of two point two seven, and a strike rate of thirty six. Three five wicket hauls and a tenth for uh, best figures of eight for sixty four innings and best figures of fourteen for one hundred thirty one in the match. Um, so yeah, um, he finished top of the wicket taking charts again. Um, Moving on. What uh, about my prediction? Sorry, Joe. What's your prediction? <laughs> <laughs> We've already done. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to give one now. All right then. No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, well, I picked Somerset in my uh, season preview before the world fell apart to win the county championship. So I'm going to stick with them to win Bob Willis. Well, in fairness, you're going well in the blast. Uh, yeah, early days, yeah. but I'm going all right. Yeah. Cool. Well, moving on to the Caribbean Premier League. Um, by the time you've listened to this final of the CPL would have would have finished between the Tran- Trinbago Knight Riders and the St. Lucia Zooks. Uh, Trinbago have won all 11 games they played so far in the competition. The two semi-finals weren't great. Trinbago restricted the Jamaica Talawas to just 107 for seven and chased it down with nine wickets and five overs to spare. Bizarrely, I can't work this one out. Um, if you guys can help me out, that'd be great. Uh, Afghanistan spinner Mujiba Rahman, despite having a career average of nine and a strike rate of less than 100, batted three for them. Got, got three ball duck. Um, and then in the other semi-final... The Good Zooks... that he came in and out, though. He didn't use as many balls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's true, that's true. Um, and, and the Zooks bowled Guyana Amazon Warriors out for 55 in the other semi-final and chased it down in 4.3 overs. Uh, Rakeem Cornwall <laughs> took an amazing catch I at Slip, one, if you've yeah, seen yeah. that one. That's worth seen. finding on Twitter if you haven't seen it. 
ready. Um, and Joe, you spoke to Dean Headley recently. Uh, why and what about? <laughs> I did. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as regular listeners of the show will know, we we can't get enough Dean Headley. Uh, partly because we didn't get enough of him during his his playing career, but in so I spoke to him for a feature we have in the magazine called My Year, uh, and we deliberated which of his excellent years we should pick, and we went for 1996 in the end, which. Uh, he made history by taking three hat-tricks across the first-class season, only the third player to ever achieve that feat. He would have actually had four hat-tricks for the year if Nick Knight had not dropped Asif Muchaba off him uh, on an England day tour of Pakistan earlier that year. Um, so it was an extraordinary summer. He was just kind of making his way for Kent at this point. Um, he made his ODI debut this summer uh, and then his test debut, I think, two two years after that. I think it was 1998, I think. Um, but this was really the kind of the, the making of him. Um, some pretty impressive hat-tricks as well. The first one against Derbyshire, Kim Barnett, Chris Adams, Dean Jones, all test cricketers, in, uh, in best career best figures of eight for 96, uh, with Dave Fulton deputising as keeper, giving a bit of help there. Then in his very next match, he took another hat-trick against Worcester, Tom Moody, uh, Spiring and Vikram Solanke. So another couple of good wickets. And then in Kent's final home match of the season for Hampshire, he cleans up the tail, makes it three hat-tricks of the season. And then in Hampshire's second innings, Martin McKay takes a hat-trick as well, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if that's the only time there's been two hat-tricks in the same first-class game. Feels like it might be, but that's not <laughs> yeah, very wisdom precise. No, no one will check. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I spoke to Headley in particular about that summer and he had some good stories to tell about a couple of those hat-tricks. Mm, absolutely. So listeners, you will hear Headley talking about the first of those hat-tricks and the third of those hat-tricks. Here's the first one. So I'm bowling to Kim Barnett, who I hated bowling to. Odd, odd uh, setup, didn't he? That was the. Yeah, but he moved across his stump, so you, you have to be very clear on what line you're bowling. So I remember I bowled two no balls in the over, and he hit me for two fours in the over. Right? Now, so five balls gone. To bear in mind, I've got three balls. Two extra balls to bowl in the over. So by five balls, I'm naught for 12. <laughs> we got Dave Fulton, who is now the standing wicketkeeper. So Dave Fulton's the standing wicketkeeper because Marshy must have broken his finger or something like that. And, um, and Dave Fulton, you know, he's a confident lad. You know, we used to call him the peacock or the pheasant because he liked, you know, roughing his feathers and everything like that. And it, look, and he's a great, great sportsman, and and he's like that, you know. He's sort of playing about, and you know, oh, don't worry. And he's loving getting these gloves on, and he's like chest going out and everything like that. So six ball, Barnett nicks it straight. I think to Fulton. Adams comes in, good length, nips away, same delivery off the seam, snick. He he's walking off. Dean Jones has obviously said to him, what's he doing with it? He's gone, he's, he's nipped it away. But I've seen the ball, I didn't swing the ball away. Dean Jones, obviously being told it, both Barnet nip, nip. He's then basically, the ball's nipped back at him. It's gone the other way. And he's basically padded up to it. So we've gone up to the LBW, he's given. The way he's his back, I mean, he's just like livid. <laughs> and then after the game he came up to we were having a drink in the bar and he just went well bold young man and you know 
Have you ever met Dean James? I've interviewed him, but over the phone, not in person. He's not short. Like he calls himself legend. You know, and that you know it, that's um, yeah. He he would say well, batted legs. You know, to himself as he's batting. And he said, um, he just said to me, oh, um, well, bold young man. He says, just remember one thing, though. There's only one Dino in cricket. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and here's the third one. Strangely, so Stan had been injured. Um, Stevenson had been injured and he'd come back out to bat, I think. We'd hurt him or something. And uh, yeah. he started playing all sorts of shots. And um, he was actually caught, trying to give himself room, caught third man. And then you yeah, wrap so up yeah. wrap up the innings, LBW, for... Well, there's, there's a story behind that. So, um, so you got Ray Julian, he's the umpire. Now, Ray Julian was a good umpire because he gave... Back then, we didn't have DRS, we didn't have anything, so a lot of people were not outers. Ray Julian gave people out when he felt it was out. Right. And people said, oh, you know, he gives too many people out. You go, well, actually, you've proven today with DRS that there are a lot more wickets out there than what there were in yesteryear, especially with spinners hiding behind the pad. Mm. You know, now umpires give people out when they think it's out. I know that might sound strange, but someone like Dickie, Dickie was a massive not-outer. Yeah. So actually, in those days, you got shot a little bit if you get, get if you gave people out, you got shot by people around you. Now, but actually, quite often, the not-outer umpire would ruin a game. Because, you know, you can't afford to take... 25 wickets in the sense of if you're getting appeals turned out and you know that they're probably out if you've got DRS out that means you're having to take 25 wickets instead of taking 20 to yeah. win a game and the opposition have to do the same so you've got 50 wickets in the game so you know to get certain umpires to get an LBW had to be it was missing off stump in the middle on the inside and it had to be missing leg stump and it had to be hit in middle and it was like but Ray, Ray was there now Ray's really good bloke you know great communicator um, <clears throat> confident in his own abilities if he felt something was out he was out anyway so he says to me uh, so the ball is reversing LBW wasn't it yeah yeah so the ball's reversing, hit him. Right, LBW gone. So now I'm on hat trick ball. And who is the person coming out? Simon Renshaw. Yeah, Simon Renshaw. So Simon Renshaw's coming out. He's number 11. We've got a reversing ball. <laughs> Ray said to me, he said, this will be a world record this won't it? <laughs> so I said, yeah. It'd be great to be part of that, wouldn't it, right? <laughs> and in those days, you could have a really good talk. I don't know what it's like now, but I've always had a good rapport with umpires. I said, well, Ray, you know, if you want to get in the record books, you know, here it is now. 
We're in front here. <laughs> it's him on the foot, full, gone. And was out? It was out. It was out. <laughs> yeah, there was no complaints. Joe, Jim and Taha, thanks. This has been the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends. And if you're feeling extra nice, feel free to leave us a five-star review or plus app of your choice. Cheers. Podcast Network.